Yes, it's the movie hour. Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard Dale. And music starting us off there, by the way. UK's number one this week, Carly Rae Jepsen and Call Me Maybe, which had a bit of a funny end when it was blended with our little Pearl and Dean <laughs> bit there. Yes. It sounded felt like very... someone was treading on the gramophone. <laughs> yes, very slightly odd anyway. So it's good to see you back. Yeah, good to, good to yes. be back after yes. last week. How are Often. you? I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, yes, yes. Good. Yes. Right, so now that's out of the way, we, yes. can, we can get on with the business Shall we of have a look at what's going on at the local cinemas? Good place to start. Yes. Very brief um, talk about Annick, because there's nothing on this week. Um, but next weekend, if I've got me fingers and toes right, or maybe it's the weekend after, uh, 2nd of May through to the 5th of May is the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Which we'll come on to, because yes. it's still in the top yeah. ten, unbelievably. Yeah. But anyway, if you'd been intending to go on the 2nd or the 4th of May, all four performances are fully sold out, so tough luck. But um, they have now added a fifth performance, which is going to be 7.30 on the 5th of May, which I think is a Saturday night, yes. is it? And if you want to book up for that one, I would suggest you get going quickly. Uh, 01665 is the box office number. Uh, meanwhile, up at the uh, the Maltings in Berwick, um, yes, Monday night, 8 o'clock, this means war. Which is dreadful. Yes. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, on uh, Wednesday evening is the Berwick Film Society and uh, Screaming Man. Which is, a v I, I don't know much about A Screaming Man, but I've heard very good things about it. Yeah. And then Thursday evening, 7 o'clock, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Again, we'll come on to it. Yeah. And that's it on the local films front. So, a quietish week, box office number 01289 330 Yeah. Top ten, then. Right. Street Dance 2. That's number 10. Yes, a completely unremarkable sequel to a completely unremarkable original. No, it is essentially a collection of dance sequences strung together by a ridiculous plot. It's not awful, but it is utterly disposable. Number 9. Finally get to it. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Yeah, I'm really glad it's taken so much money, actually. I mean, John Madden's a decent director, and it's good to see a film taking money on the strength of a... A relatively senior cast, which isn't just some kind of blamongy merchant ivory pudding of a film. Because this is actually quite good fun. Right. Wrath of the Titans is at number eight. Every bit as boring and as disappointing as Clash of the Titans. The 3D's pointless, the special effects are much less engaging than the special effects in the Ray Harryhausen original, and all the actors are sleepwalking through their parts. We're getting off to a good start, aren't we? There is bound uh, to come. <laughs> number seven is 21 Jump Street. Which is fine. I mean, it's you know, the remake of the 1980s cop show, which is famous pretty much only for the fact that it launched the career of Johnny Depp. I think, you know, Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill do a pretty decent job, and the retro jokes are... Well, it's nothing you haven't seen before, but it is quite funny. Julia Roberts at uh, number six, Mirror Mirror. Utter pants. I mean, it's a visually flashy, but narratively feeble rendition of Snow White. I mean, the problem with Tarsum Singh is he is a music video director so he knows how to do costumes and he knows how to do editing and he knows how to do music but when it comes to actually telling the story he's not brilliant and the problem with mirror mirror is that all the substance and no the straightforward power of the original fairy tale which if you watch the disney version is actually quite dark yeah. um it's just sidestepped in favor of rather poor slapstick and very misjudged creative decisions involving army hammer and i just think 
if okay you're aiming it at a young audience so why isn't the disney version good enough right the next uh, animation blockbuster number five cast list or voice list to die for hugh grant martin freeman imelda staunton she can do no wrong uh brendan gleason david tennant brian blessed it's pirates band of misfits yes yeah. uh well pirates in an adventure with scientists depending on which title you're going for and i do agree imelda staunton can do no wrong especially in this film where she gives one of her finest performances as queen victoria i mean it's alderman animation so you know that you're going to get something of very high quality and the devil is in the detail so you won't see everything the first time around the cameo by brian blessed is superb i laugh constantly throughout and i think that it's it's a good sign that that Ardman's relationship with Sony Pictures is going to be a lot more fruitful than their work with DreamWorks, because I was never sure about Flushed Away. Right, huge uh, critical acclaim for The Hunger Games. Which um, I, yeah. What do you think of it? I think it's really great. I think it is... I, I stand by my verdict that it's better than the original version of Lord of the Flies. I mean... It does reference a whole lot of dystopian films from the 1970s, along with, you know, to some extent, the works of Tim Burton. But it does have its own identity outside of this canon, and I am impressed that someone made a sci-fi blockbuster aimed at a teenage audience, which was smart and understood its fan base. And I do think Jennifer Lawrence is terrific. And on to number three, The Cabin in the Woods. Now, there's quite a story behind this. It's it's the new film written by Josh Whedon, who did um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Drew Goddard, who was the writer of Cloverfield not so long ago. So, you know, quite uh, embedded in the horror tradition and the story goes that this was made in 2009 but the release was delayed first of all by the plans to convert it into 3d which fortunately never happened and then by the production company going bust so the film was kind of floating around yeah. looking for a distributor is eventually picked up by Lionsgate story is that you have a group of teenagers who go to a cabin in the woods and all manner of bad stuff happens and I can't reveal any more about that without sort of giving away the plot but it's not the kind of Evil Dead knockoff that you would think it is. I mean, it does play with the imagery and topes of things like the Evil Dead or Cabin Fever. There's also a quite big reference to My Little Eye, the Mark Evans film, and the works of H.P. Lovecraft, because there is a, a role for beasts called the Ancient Ones, which, if you know Lovecraft, is very much at the back yeah. of that. So I can't really say too much about it, because that would be a massive spoiler, but it looks really good. All right. You actually look a bit like H.P. Lovecraft, thinking about it. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if that's good news. It, it or is. Not. It's a massive compliment. Lovecraft's a great author. Right. Okay. Uh, I guess a very topical um, one at number two. Not surprisingly, Titanic. Did it have to be in three D? No. I mean, it just does to prove how much of a hypocrite James Cameron is because when the retrofitted 3D wave started after Avatar came out. He was the one standing up and complaining and saying, you know, retrofitted 3D, it's, it's not 3D, it's 2.5D, I can't understand why people are doing it. So you think, well, okay, I don't like your, I don't like Avatar very much, but at least you're principled enough to say, okay, if it's got to be 3D, it has to be made in 3D. But now he's gone back and taken his most successful film and retrofitted it into 3D. And obviously it does coincide with the 100th anniversary of the sinking. So you think, okay, you are only doing this for the money and all the technology in the world, 3D or otherwise, can't make up for the fact that it's got a rotten script and rubbish storytelling. It's still infinitely better than the TV series. Um, I haven't seen the TV series, but I'll it's take your word for it. truly awful. I mean, the best Titanic movie still is A Night to Remember. Yes, yes, indeed. Followed very closely by Raise the Titanic, but that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Didn't know about that. <laughs> I shall make a note of that. <laughs> Odd box. Right. <laughs> Just... At number one, Rihanna. 
and Battleship. Yes, which, I mean, it's the film of the toy, and it does say from the producers of Transformers, so you know exactly what you're going to get, and I'm going to leave it at that. Right, okay. Because, you know, um, no, we'll wait till there's another film like that's come out to get a proper rant on the scale of Transformers 3. Right. So, recommendations? Uh, I think uh, The Cabin in the Woods, if you're a horror fan, The Hunger Games, and uh, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. So, plenty to choose from. Yes, and the best exotic Marigot Hotel for those who haven't seen it already. Yeah, but get going if you want to book your tickets for the Playhouse because they will go very, very quickly at that, I'm sure. I'm hard radio. Okay, tell us a little bit about the cult film while I try and put some music up to play. Okay, the cult film this week is uh, This Is Spinal Tap, 1984 mockumentary, often cited as the first ever mockumentary, although this isn't quite true. That title belongs to uh, a late 70s offering called The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash. Do you remember The Ruttles? Nah. Eric Idle and Neil Innes sort of uh, grew out of Eric Idle's pet project of oh, right. Weekend yeah. Television and the, they yeah. were, it started off as a sketch then Saturday Night Live got involved and they had a TV film it wasn't very good however debut film by Rob Reiner who started out his career as an actor in a US sitcom All about the F all in the Family and during the 80s and, and early 90s he could pretty much do no wrong I mean you look at the list of films he made The Sure Thing Stand By Me which is one of the best yeah. Stephen King adaptations and launched the career of Kiefer Sutherland Princess Bride you know as a, my name is Inigo Montoya <laughs> <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die, which is still very good. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, which you know, if you if you've been to the cinema recently and you watch the uh, the the Volkswagen adverts for seeing cinema differently, and they go to uh, famous film locations and they go to the diner where Meg yeah. Ryan had her moment <laughs> and uh, talk about yes. sort of people recreating it. And then later on in the nineties, he did Misery, which is another Stephen King yeah. adaptation, and A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson, just on the right side of Hamming with that great speech. No, you can't handle the truth. So he was a very good director since then however he sort of come unstuck he did he did north with elijah wood and since then no uh, hit and miss um filmed on a budget of two and a half million dollars so quite lavish compared to some yeah. of the stuff that we've tackled and particularly last week looking at gregory's girl which allegedly was made for 500 quid. Me, yes <laughs> um, and it was m only modestly successful on first release the test screenings of this went very very badly you know when they they get about 100 people in off the street give them a card and you show yeah. them the film and ask them what they think and one of the respondents was literally too shaky get a new cameraman man um but it found a massive audience on home video and has since become one of the most beloved cult films of all time and that's shown by the way that it, it's it's lingo if you like has permeated into our culture well hopefully we've whetted everybody's appetites and we'll talk more about it after some music the heart of the district this is lionheart radio Hagen fall and don't forget you can see him live this evening nine o'clock at the three wise monkeys here in fenkel street Right. Good, very, very good friend of Lionheart Radio. Talking about friends of Lionheart Radio, Lewis Denny in the journal today. Yes, page seven. Freddie Flintoff. Yes, Jammy Beggar. Yes, just a slight difference in height. <laughs> well, give it time, you know. <laughs> maybe, no, maybe inside Lewis there is a fast bowler trying to get out. Anyway, our cult classic this week, which you set up for us before that, is This Is Spinal Tap. Yeah, so, Off we, you go. so we got as far as um, something about, talking about the background of how it was made and yeah. so forth. One thing I neglected to do was set up the plot. Now, it's... It's it's actually, I mean, because the film is quite well known, you might think, okay, well, what's the point? Because everyone knows the plot. But for those who haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's set in the mid-80s. And it follows the trials and tribulations of British heavy metal band Spinal Tap as they embark on a tour across North America to promote their latest album called Smell the Glove. Uh, and the band consists of uh, lead guitarist, uh, sorry, rhythm guitarist and lead vocals, uh, David St. Hubbins, who's played by Michael McKean. Uh, Nigel Tufnell, played by Christopher Guest, who plays lead guitar. 
well. Uh, Derek Smalls, played by The Simpsons' Harry Shearer on bass, and he's got a massive handlebar moustache. Viv Savage, played by David Caff on keyboards, and various people on drums, because their drummers keep meeting with sticky ends, including spontaneous combustion. For most of their <laughs> film, for most of the film, their main drummer is RJ Parnell, who was also the real-life drummer in the prog rock group Atomic Rooster back in the early 70s. And uh, you have various encounters, including the band arguing with their incompetent manager, played by Tony Hendra, uh, marital jealousy, struggling with props, and enduring many publicity failures. And all the while, they are being followed around by documentary filmmaker Marty DeBerge, who is played by Rob Reiner. Now, there is something very, very special about the debut feature, if you look back over a filmmaker's career, and the first film that a filmmaker makes can often define their entire career, which is a blessing if it leads to future success, yeah. and a curse yeah. if it turns out to be the only good thing they ever made. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of films like that. We know things like Quadrophenia, yeah. or, yeah. Heather, or yeah. Heathers, or um, I suppose something... No, I was going to say The Magic Christian, but that wasn't a, a debut effort, but something along those lines. And although Reiner has, like I said, continue to produce pretty decent work right yeah. up to the mid-90s at least, he's never entirely bettered This Is Spinal Tap. I mean, I really like When Harry Met Sally. I think The Princess Bride is very close to perfect, but it's yeah. not quite there, and this is still one of the funniest comedies of the 1980s. Um, its cult status is evident by just how many of its lines have entered into our an everyday lexicon. I think I was thinking about this, and only Rocky Horror really has has got a greater permutation in terms of how yeah. much quotable it is. And incidentally, uh, the Tyneside Cinema are doing a a cult screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show Ooh. Monday night at eight forty five. So get along in full costume. Yeah, I was about to say you costume and makeup obligatory. Exactly, yes. and of course talking back to the screen, which is what you have to do in Rocky Horror. So I mean, just to give you some of the lines for those. Don't know. I mean, whenever you have a TV presenter like talking about the effort levels of sportsmen or the atmosphere of the gig, you just know you're going to hear the phrase, it's been turned up to 11, which wouldn't exist without Spinal Tap. Um, Nigel Tufnell's remark about there being a fine line between clever and stupid, which has no, actually become quite used yeah. by, horror, yeah. by film reviewers, particularly when talking about comedies. And even things like, you know, um, when Christopher Guest is over a keyboard and he says, I'm writing a song in D minor, which I think is the saddest of all keys. <laughs> and, uh, and when he's looking at the album cover, and said, how much more black could it be? And the answer is, none more black. <laughs> and it was just, no, yeah. that fine line, I mean, those lines are instantly recognisable even by people who haven't seen the film. They just kind of pick up on yeah. it. I mean, from a filmmaking point of view, the first good thing about Spinal Tap is it's an editing masterclass. I mean, whereas subsequent rock spoofs like, for instance, Wayne's World from the early 90s were constructed very tightly from a script, and there's another Saturday Night Collection there because that's one of the few yeah. good SNL films, where subsequent spoofs like that were created from a script Reiner's is created from dozens of hours of improvisation in front of the camera. But what happened was the cast and Reiner filmed themselves keeping the cameras rolling and rolling and rolling. I mean, most of the budget would have been spent on celluloid because of how much footage yeah. they had. And then Reiner took these mountains of footage and condensed it down to a running time of 82 minutes, which is very taut and lean. Yeah. There is apparently a four-and-a-half-hour bootleg version, which was never released but has been doing sort of the rounds in the... Um, in the fans of Spinal Tap since the late 1980s, and there is a small group of people who will hold that that is actually the proper version of Spinal Tap, if only because they thought 82 minutes isn't enough. <laughs> but basically, you have that idea whereby you keep improvising and eventually, you know, when something funny is said, you know you've got it on record, as opposed to, oh yes, do that thing again, and this time we'll get it on camera, and it's never quite the same. 
so, I mean, it, that demonstrates Reiner's discipline in being able to sort of take hours and hours of footage and create it into 82 minutes. But it, there are also two positive side effects. I mean, like I said, the first is that you never get the sense of anything being staged or choreographed. The humour flows incredibly freely, so yeah. freely, in fact, that you won't notice every joke first time round. And the other thing is that because no one really knew where the next joke was coming from, I mean, nobody knew where the next one-liner was happening, yeah. uh, the crew had to be very much on their toes and getting close to the actors. So... The camera work of Spinal Tap, which, like I say, was criticised in the test screening because it's all handheld stuff, yeah. it's very intimate and you don't get that sense of being up close and personal, either in the Ruttles or in Wayne's World, where it's much also wide shots and this yeah. is a recreation of the band as opposed to, oh, this just happened yeah. and let's just yeah. move around and have a look. And the, the amateurish feel of Spinal Tap, to some extent, is, is part of its great appeal. The secret of Spinal Tap's success as a mockumentary, I think, is the balance between naturalism of the actors and the total absurdity of what they are doing. <laughs> so even though you have a band which is clearly, you know, pompous, preposterous, and incredibly egomaniacal in what they're doing, they feel like real people whom we've just wandered in on, rather than yeah. sort of puppets of a, di of a director saying, I'm going to manipulate these people and they will be funny and you will laugh. It's <laughs> uh, a strange sort of cabinet of Dr. Yes. Caligari thing I was doing with my hands. And so you have the intimate camera work, coupled with the comic timing of the performers. I mean, Christopher Guest has gone on to do things like Best in Show and that sort of thing, yeah. which play on the same kind of thing. And you give the impression that everyone both in front of and behind the camera believes in both the stories of these people and the music yeah. that they've created. So there's a real affection for it. If you compare this to the Ruttles, the thing about the Ruttles, which, like I say, was a TV film from 1978, where basically it was a parody of the Beatles with you know, Neil Innes, formerly of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, yeah. writing the songs, and Eric Idle playing the interviewer, following them around. The problem with the Ruttles was that Eric Idle was constantly sort of winking at the audience to say, this is a Beatles reference, do you get it? And here's another <laughs> one, and here's another one, and here's another one. And eventually you just got to the point where, no, the invocation of the Beatles events was so, no naked, if you like. Yeah, I mean, for instance, yeah. like, uh, instead of um, going off and getting um, LSD, they, the band become addicted to tea and go and live in Australia, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's the obvious joke. The band of the Ruttles never really felt as if they could have a life outside of the central conceit. But there's never a moment in Spinal Tap when Rhino tries to bring you in on the joke. It's very much, you know, yeah. No, it wouldn't work if anyone was winking at the audience. And even when Reiner comes on screen as Marty DeBerge and gives this speech at the start about finding this great British band, you never feel like that little perfect bubble of yeah. the film has been punctured by, no, let's do it postmodern, let's do it a bit weird. And, no, the performers are confident enough in their abilities to to and the strength in the material to understand that the audience will get the joke rather than being told it's a joke. But, of course... The way that things work out, that wasn't entirely true because Spinal Tap eventually became a real band that went on tour in the early 90s. I think they actually played at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert. So Gosh. that kind of gives an indication <laughs> yeah. of how their fame is. And of course, if you, uh, if you remember the Secret Policeman's Ball, they turn up briefly on the 30th anniversary show. I think it must have been on their, yeah. their tour. So Spinal Tap, it's a satire primarily of heavy metal and the rock industry as it was in the 1980s. And it shows how the trends in 80s metal that we recognize, sort of the, the long hair the guitar shredding, the lengthy solos and so forth, had grown out of both the more pompous, self-absorbed end of progressive rock and the harsher side of glam rock with yeah. sort of Mark Bolan and so forth. So you, you have this, this band who basically embody every single cliche in the business to show how bloated and self-serving stadium rock has become. Yeah. And
and the levels of ego and stupidity present on the tour for Smell the Glove is enough to make anyone basically go running and buying up the Smiths back catalogue. Yeah. Give me something that's nothing to do with that. Give me something that's miserable and, and sort of introverted. I mean, it's replete with references to rock stars and rock images. I mean, there's the, the cover of Smell the Glove, which is, uh, a, which no, originally was going to be some kind of S&M cover, but as a compromise, they put it out as plain black, which is a reference both to the Beatles' White Album yeah. and to some extent the Bin Liner cover of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were yeah. Here because they had four different covers and the bin liner was the outer cover. And there's further Beatles references in the character of Janine, who is Davidson Hubbard's uh, wife who meets them halfway along the tour and effectively becomes the Yoko Ono character yeah. of splitting the two songwriters up and having these strange ideas about star signs and conceptual yeah. art and so forth. I mean, unlike the Ruttles where that joke, the Yoko Ono joke, is done with Neil Innes marrying a girl who likes to dress up as a Nazi. This is a little bit more subtle. Um, the musical numbers in Spinal Tap are brilliantly smart send-ups of songs from the era. I mean, Stonehenge, which is the best joke in the film, basically rips into all the elaborate sets that Yes used to employ. Yeah. Where basically you've got this, this proggy number about sort of prehistoric society and at, so, at the key moment a, a prop of Stonehenge itself is lowered from the ceiling into the middle of the stage. But the trouble is they get the measurements wrong. So instead of saying, <laughs> instead of saying 18 feet by 18 feet, it's 18 inches by 18 inches. And there's this hysterical moment where Christopher Guest is on lead vocals and Stonehenge starts lowering <laughs> over his shoulder and then it cuts to the wide shot and it just comes up to his knees and it's lovely. Stage. And it's, no, you can't help but laugh yeah. because it's just, that must have happened. Then you've got stuff like Jazz Odyssey, which is, um, you know, Harry Shearer noodling around on the bass, you know, yeah. taking the mick out of things like Stanley Clark's Dream Suite or King Crimson's Moonchild, which goes on for about 12 minutes and the middle of it is just things like... <laughs> Weird stuff. And, you know, the performances, you've got things like the tongue-poking of Kiss, you know, the thing that Gene yeah. Simmons used to do, albeit without the makeup, the schoolboy cheek of ACDC. And again, all the performers are playing their own instruments, so you really believe that people could have, could have created songs yeah. that are this stupid and are this up themselves. I mean, the reaction of real-life musicians to Spinal Tap is quite mixed, actually, and it does show how close to reality it trod, albeit inadvertently. Um, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant closely disliked the film because they felt that a lot of the stuff that had happened in the film had actually happened to Led Zeppelin on tour. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff about the Snapper incident, which we won't go into on radio because it's a matter of great controversy. Uh, Tom Waits, the, the sort of the throaty blues singer, apparently burst into tears halfway through and wouldn't stop crying till the end because he was just you no know, great release of emotion. Eddie Van Halen took legions of his fans to see it, hearing it was good everyone else was laughing except him because he, <laughs> he felt like it was just normal practice to behave like that on the road and most telling of all uh, Lars Ulrich who's the drummer of Metallica uh, he likened their 1992 tour, tour to Spinal Tap and there was actually a moment where the two bands were touring together and they, um, they had an interview set a bit backstage and uh, Lars Ulrich went on record as saying, yeah, our black album, total homage to Tap, we all love you, now let's go and do a gig together and they yeah. actually just played a couple of songs. The thing about Spinal Tap is that although the satire of the music industry is very clear and very savage in places, there is also a great sense of affection demonstrated by just the quality of the musicianship. I mean, this is a film that could easily have gone the way of saying, let's create songs that are so bad they're bad. Yeah. But the joke would have worn off in about five minutes and you wouldn't really care about the men yeah, behind the right. egos. But the fact that Spinal Tap went on to have a legitimate pop career and you know, Harry Shearer took some of that ability into The Simpsons shows that no, we did care yeah. about them. 
I mean, it does delve into other issues surrounding rock and roll, which again sort of invoke different um, moments in. I mean, there's all the the arguments between the band and their manager Ian Faith, who is completely incompetent. Do it, it treads in that area? Do you remember the Queen song "Dead on Two Death on Two Legs"? which was written by Freddie Mercury about the band's manager after he stole all their money. No, and I said, you suck yeah. my blood like a leech, you break the law and you preach, you screw my brain till it hurts, you've taken all my money and you want more, that sort of thing. One of Queen's few good songs in the 70s. And so it taps into the whole thing about the record industry ruining the creativity of artists in their quest yeah. for commercial success, although whether they actually had any talent in the first place is disputable. Um, the arguments over the cover of Smell the Glove, no, find you know, the manager saying, you know, that this cover is actually a bold artist artistic choice. This is the thing that's going to sell us loads of records. And of course, there's, I suppose, a reference to Back in Black as well, the ACDC yeah. cover. Um, then you've got things like, you know, the artistic mismanagement. There's a character called Artie Fufkin, who is uh, an incompetent promoter who comes in with a, with a sort of comb over and says, I'm going to get yeah. you all the airplay. And then it cuts to a record store where they're signing and the record store is absolutely dead. <laughs> and Fufkin is arguably a reference to Rupert Pupkin, who is Robert De Niro's character in The King of Comedy, this sort of delusional comedian who thinks yeah. he's king and yeah. wants to be on telly. And I suppose that, you know, fleetingly there are also discussions about, you know, whether it's possible to be a rock star in your 40s, whether rock has something inherently homoerotic because Taps audiences is largely young men, yeah. and the whole thing about being big in Japan, which is traditionally seen as an as an insult, yeah. but uh, has since become sort of embraced in a strange way. It's also a very good um, send up of the rock doc format, and that some of the best scenes are the recreations of the earlier periods of music. I mean, a bit like the Ruttles did that to some extent, because there's a very good moment in the Ruttles where they recreate the Ed Sullivan show, and yeah. they re and they cut footage of Ed Sullivan introducing the Beatles and then dub him over and then it cuts to the band in black and white. Um, but in the same way here, there's a performance of Spinal Tap's earliest hit, which is from the early 60s, called Listen to the Flower People, where all psychedelic sets, they've got that kind of thing that you used to see the Who doing, of the, the drums yeah. on a stage and dancers randomly at the extremes of the camera just doing strange things with their arm for no apparent reason. It, it does kind of make you think, again, it, it's, it, I'm hammering this point home, but it is, you know, there is every effort expended to make you believe that tap are real, yeah. even though the joke is they're not real. Yeah. So, to sum up, I think it is one of the funniest films of the 1980s and still the best film that Rob Reiner has ever made. It does take a while to get going, and there's a, a little sort of romantic-ish twist at the end, which I'm not entirely sure about, you know, where basically Nigel Tufnell yeah. gets fired from the band, then Janine goes, and then he gets to come back in. Um, but for the vast majority of the film, the charm and the humour remains intact. There are moments, like I say, the Stonehenge sequence, which are still hysterical, even after those kinds of things have been imitated by Wayne's World and so forth. And so when everything is said and done, it stands as the definitive mockumentary of this and any era. And as far as Rob Reiner's concerned, there's none more funny. Right! <laughs> Let's uh, have a little break. Lionheart Radio The voice of Northumberland Where did that one come from? Goodness knows. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I was nearly about to start talking there. <laughs> anyway, it's our Diamond Jubilee next week. It our is. Our very own. <laughs> Not that we're sort of going in in ermine or anything like that, but yeah, it's our 60th show next week, so we'll be marking the occasion by not doing anything to do with the Queen, but we will do the Stepford Wives. That sounds good. Yes. yes. Nice and creepy. Yes. <laughs> Thanks very much to Mick for texting in. Uh, first of all, to tell us that uh, All City Connection, Battle of the Bands, you see, are playing at uh, the... Uh, they're in North Shields, and uh, uh, the Magnesia Bank in North Shields. Right. So, have a good evening. 
Uh, I'm sure it will go very well. Play Stonehenge. Yes. And then I can't work out if he thinks Lemmy is a rock star or not a rock star, or you did or he did or... I don't think I mentioned Lemmy, did I? I don't know. No, but no, for the record he is a rock star. He's <laughs> also completely insane, but he's a very good rock star. There you are, right. <laughs> oh, shall we, uh, shall we have a look at the films coming uh, out? Yeah, the new releases. Yes. Let's, let's get on to that. Yes, so um, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Good place to start. Uh, new film from Lasse Hallstrom, whom we both like. You know, yeah. The guy who did uh, Chocolat and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And also, you know, more recently, lesser works like Casanova and Dear John, but we'll gloss over those. Yeah. It's based on a novel by Paul Torday and adapted by Simon Beaufoy, who won an Oscar for his adaptation of Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. So quite a bit of prestige behind it. So the story follows um, a guy called Alfred Jones, played by Ewan McGregor, who is uh, a Scottish fisheries expert, expert who also suffers from Asperger's, and he is commissioned by an Arab sheikh to introduce salmon into the Yemen Sea so that, he can, so that this sheikh can bring fly fishing to the region. And he says it's completely impossible, there's no way salmon can survive in the Middle East, but he is eventually persuaded to do it at the request of both the PM's assistant played by Kristen Scott Thomas, and uh, a consultant working for the Sheikh, who's played by Emily Blunt. I mean, it, like I say, Halstrom has been off the boil a bit recently. I mean, Dear John, I wasn't really a fan of just because it was incredibly manipulative. But this is him at least getting back on form at least part way. I mean, he's back to doing what he does better, which is a sort of light-hearted, frothy, romantic comedy drama with just enough schmaltz to get away with. And, I mean, the plot is predictable up to a point. You, you kind of think, okay, he's going to fall in love with Emily yeah. Blunt and it's all going to work out in the end and everyone's going to learn something. And if you wanted to be harsh, you could unpick the plot as being ridiculous like well the, because the whole thing is he the government get behind his project because they need a goodwill story to cover up a bombing in the middle east yeah. and think and say let's say this is an our priority project but if you do buy into the premise it does pass the time quite nicely. I mean, like I say, like Chocolat, it's one of those things where you, it shouldn't really work because it is just a quite simple, frothy story, but you care about the characters. Ewan McGregor does very well. I mean, he's often the best thing in bad films, but in this case, yeah. he's the best thing in quite a decent film. And Emily Blunt, it's always good to see her in a lead role. It does tread a little close to Dear John in its you know, sort of use of the war as a backdrop, yeah. and I'm yeah. not entirely sure about that. But again, if you're looking for something to pass a rainy afternoon, it will do its job very nicely. Right. Shall we uh, talk about this week's turkey? Looks like gone. Okay. Um, new film by Haita Dahlia, who uh, is a foreign language filmmaker most notable for directing Adrift, which I think won a prize at, uh, at either Sundance or Cannes. Um, this is her first English language effort, scripted by Alison Burnett, who did Underworld Awakening. Uh, the story is that a young girl called Jill Parrish, who's played by Amanda Seyfried, uh, comes home from a night shift to discover that her sister Molly has been abducted. And uh, Jill had escaped from a kidnapper 12 months ago, and she is utterly convinced it's the same man who has gone after her sister and she goes out to hunt him down and has to recover her sister by sundown. I mean, it is as generic and as derivative as they come. There's a great quote from Glenn Whip, who writes film reviews for the Los Angeles Times, saying it was a, a film that makes Murder on the Orient Express look like The Silence of the Lambs by comparison, which is quite harsh. I mean, there are big hints of things like um, Kiss the Girls, the Morgan Freeman film, which was yeah. about a serial killer preying on young girls and you know, luring them to a cabin in the woods. There's also hints even of the, the Taylor Lautner vehicle abduction, directed by John Singleton, which got kicked all around town uh, several months ago. I mean, 
I like Amanda Seyfried. I mean, she's, she has done some rather odd stuff like Mamma Mia, which I'm not so sure about, but she's very good in Chloe, the Atomy Goyen yeah. erotic thriller. And, no, she does try her hardest. The problem is that the film around her is just total dishwater, and you won't remember it even whilst you're watching it, let alone after you've seen it. Right, talking <laughs> about derivatives, uh, Lookouts. Yeah. Lockout, even. Sorry? Look. Is it Lockout? Lockout. Lockout, Look yes. out for lockout. Yes. Okay, a debut feature written and directed by Stephen S. Lake, or Saint-Léger, I think it is, and James Mather, and produced by Luc Besson, who uh, directed things like Leon, or The Professionals, it's also yeah. known, and The Fifth Element. Uh, and like The Fifth Element, it's set in a space-bound future, in which, see if you can pick up on the plot of this, uh, a falsely convicted ex-government agent, played by Guy Pearce, uh, is offered his freedom if he goes on a dangerous mission to save the president's daughter, played by Maggie Grace, from rioting convicts at a maximum security jail in outer space. Now, what does that remind you of? Uh, any number of films. <laughs> but what does it mainly remind you of? It's John Carpenter's Escape from New oh, York. Oh, right, yeah. No, because yes. it's exactly the yeah. same plot. Now, in the John Carpenter film from 1981, you have the convicted criminal Snake Pliskin, played by Kurt Russell with the sort of the eye patch over one eye. And he has... <clears throat> the story of that is that he's sent into... A, New York has been sealed off in this post-apocalyptic future and turned into yeah. a prison. And he's got to go in and save the president, played by Donald Pleasance, who is being held captive by a, bang of gang a bunch of gangsters, played by Isaac Hayes, who would later play chef in South Park. And the thing about that was, I mean, the Carpenter film is not that brilliant, but it was a good sort of nuts and bolts yeah. B-movie and, and had a good score and a couple of pretty decent set pieces. And this just retreads the same ground, almost like it's an unofficial remake. I mean... Pierce is always good fun to watch. I mean, no, I think he was one of the best things in the King's Speech. I really yeah. like him in Animal Kingdom and, you know, and Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Go and check the podcast. And it isn't as bad as Escape from L.A., which was John Carpenter's sequel to Escape from New York, in which the worst scene of that was Kurt Russell surfing down the Washington Monument to catch Steve Buscemi in a car, <laughs> which you just think, shark jump doesn't really come into it. And, no, it's just a very shallow retread of a film which wasn't brilliant in the first place, so go and rent Escape from New York instead. Right, let's move on to something rather better. Looks like being the film of the week for me, Marley. Yes, um, new film by Kevin McDonald, who uh, has had quite a lengthy career so far because he did Touching the Void, which was the documentary about the two climbers getting stranded up the South American peak. Uh, the Last King of Scotland, for which Forrest Whitaker won an Oscar for playing Idi Amin. Yeah. Um, the Eagle, which um, no, you're a big fan of, I'm not entirely sure about, but it's still quite good. State of Play, which is a pretty decent adaptation of the TV series. Most recently he did uh, another documentary called Life in a Day, which was produced by Ridley Scott and consisted of videos that people had sent of a single day in their life through YouTube and had been yeah. pieced together into a sort of hour and a half uh, film. So it's a documentary, as the title suggests, about Bob Marley, uh, combining archive footage of his live performances with interviews from his surviving family members and relatives and other members of his band, The Wailers, including Bunny Whaler, who turns up in Fire in Babylon. And it covers his whole career from sort of the great early performances with the Whalers on things like the old grey whistle test, which yeah. you'll remember. I do. And uh, going forward to his involvement in Rastafarianism and the attempted assassination and finally his battle with, I think it was cancer that he had, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a much more conventional work than either of McDonald's previous documentaries. I mean, the, the thing about Touching the Void was that it was very, very brutal. You know, it was, it could have been just a sort of 
it looked like a disaster movie, but actually it was really sort of intense and claustrophobic. It was actually quite painful to watch, and not that this should be anything like that, but it's it very much played with the medium, whereas this is much more a conventional documentary. It's, it's very well researched and very well made. I mean, certainly it's a lot more cinematic than something like Fire in Babylon, which tapped into the whole thing of Bob Marley's... Um, involvement in the sort of the rise of West Indies culture. I mean, that was focusing yeah. more on the West Indies cricket team, but there was a touch on reggae. And I just, it doesn't quite have the sparkle <coughs> of something like Senna, which was one of the best films of last year. So I think if you're a Bob Marley fan, you're obviously going to check it out. If you are the casual viewer, it might work, but I'm not sure that it's preaching to the converted a little too much. Right. So I think it's a conditional recommendation, because Kevin yes. MacDonald's a good filmmaker, but I'm not sure this is his finest work. I'll enjoy it just for the music. Yeah. Onto the Divide. Okay, uh, let me see. Divide is the new film by uh, Javier Gens, who previously directed Hitman and Frontier. And Hitman was utter rubbish. Frontier had a couple of interesting scenes in it, but it was rather uh, derivative otherwise. Uh, the story follows nine strangers, all of whom live in a New York high-rise apartment block. And there's a big nuclear attack on the city, and they survive the nuclear attack by hiding in the basement. And eventually, supplies begin to run out, people start going mad, despair sets in, and depravity begins to erode what's left of their humanity, and it's a question of are they ever going to get out and who will survive. Um, it's a very familiar device in horror and science fiction. I mean, no, the, the whole thing about is the danger out there in the sort of the, yeah. the nuclear wasteland or is it in here in this room? I mean, that, to some extent, that goes back to things like the Omega Man, the Charlton Heston film, which was itself based on a short story by Richard yeah. Matheson, which had been done for The Twilight Zone. Uh, or you look at something like George Romero's The Crazies, in which it's townsfolk turning on each other because of a strange virus that's in the air. You know, it, it's a very well-worn idea. And this is distinctive just in terms of how far it goes with the idea. I mean, it is very dark, it's often brutal, and there is a surprising amount of cross-dressing involved, if you've seen the trailer. <laughs> sort of men wearing women's yeah. clothing just randomly and the other way around. My advice is, um, I mean, it will do perfectly fine. I think it's an okay sort of nuts and bolts, end-of-the-worldy film. But if you want a really good film, either go and rent the original version of The Crazies, which is still very underrated as a George Romero film, or go and rent this film called The Wave, which is a German film about uh, students at a school who form their, who are being taught about uh, the legacy of Nazi Germany. And one of the students says, well, no, it couldn't possibly happen today. You know, we're older than Rises. So the teacher says, really? And they sort of reconstruct a sort of play version of fascist yeah. government which then escalates and gets out of control and they take over the school and it's a very interesting yeah. d documentation of how society can disintegrate so quickly yeah. if power's in the wrong place so i would rent either of those the divide it's perfectly fine but it's not the crazies and finally this mm. week grave encounters yeah debut film by the vicious brothers which sounds like something out right now yeah it? it sounds like you know the dangerous brothers you know that rick aid rick and aid vehicle yeah. from the early yes. 80s um and of course their fantastic parody of the towering inferno where aid edmondson was set on fire yeah. um so it, it, Vicious Brothers, real life uh, filmmakers Colin Minahan and Stuart Ortiz, and it's a found footage film <sighs> which documents the last episode of a TV show called Grave Encounters, in which presenters go into what is supposedly the most haunted building in the US. It's this big deserted hospital, and bad stuff happens. And you think, okay, well, you kind of asked for it by going into the place that's held as the most haunted place in America. I mean, notwithstanding my past comments about found footage with the devil inside and things like that. 
it's slightly better than the devil inside if only because there is a tiny bit more atmosphere i mean the devil that's not very hard to achieve because the devil's yeah. inside was incredibly boring and had a terrible ending um but once you get over those couple of cre creepy moments, most of which are done with sort of camera tricks anyway, it's only, it is essentially an episode of Ghost Hunter, but without the guy talking in a Scouse accent. And no, they claimed, no, on their website, no, we're sick and tired of how horror movies have sort of been so conservative. Yeah. This is really pushing the envelope, this is really scary and really unnerving. It's like, no, you're just flogging a dead horse. So, maybe there is talent in there somewhere, maybe they'll make a more interesting film having sort of tested the water with this. Yeah. But it is just yet another found footage horror film with about one scary moment in the trailer, and once you've seen that, you don't need to see the film. So, a bit of a mixed bunch this week. Yeah, so there's a few turkeys. Recommendations? Yeah, I think it's... The film of the week is either Marley, particularly if you're sort of fans of Bob Marley like you are, or Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, because it's good to see Lassa Halstrom back in our cinemas. Great. Right, we are going to have a little bit of Bob Marley. I'm Hard Radio. One of the greatest singers of all time there, Bob Marley, and I shot the sheriff. Now, choose your words very carefully, Mr. Mumby. Okay. Because we've had a text in from Mick who's pointed out the reference to his previous one because apparently it's been suggested you can't be a rock star over 40, which Lemmy is. Well, I, I should and like... A certain rocks, well-known rock star down in Almouth who is performing oh, at North Shields tonight. I didn't know you were... 30 yet, Mick? <laughs> Still 35. Um, I would like to point out that I didn't personally say you couldn't be a rock star over the age of 40. I said that it's an issue that's discussed in the film. And in defence of the film, I don't think it gives a definite answer because Davidson Hubbins and Nigel Tuffnell probably don't realise they're in their 40s yet. Right. So I think, no, Mick, carry on. <laughs> and don't let me or the band stop you because I think Harry Shearer is busy in America. So he won't be coming around telling you to stop anytime soon. <laughs> Great. Is that a comprehensive enough answer for you? I hope so. And I'll be out of the studio before Mick can text back. <laughs> Has he got my number? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, right, you're back this Thursday, aren't you? I am, from uh, one till three, uh, for another dose of Mix and Match with Mumby. And we'll be back next Saturday, two hours of sport between eight and ten, and then the movie hour between... 10 and 11. Yes, to look at the Stepford Wives for our 60th birthday. Yes, a diamond jubilee. Mm. Yes, yes. Happy birthday to the Queen today, by the way. Oh. She's 86. Congratulations. I didn't know that. Well, no, you're the royalist out of the two of us. So <laughs> I'll take <laughs> right. your word for it. Right, taking us out. Should we have a little bit of spinal tap? I think we better, don't you? Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.